The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. So, please open your Bibles to the book of Ezekiel. Hey, it's my wife. I really didn't expect to see her in here today. Joseph and Joy, who we brought home from Ethiopia two Septembers ago, they're in their first day of Sunday school class. So, so they must be doing all right. This is great. All right, so we are um, really in our second year of walking through Jesus' Bible, spending a few weeks on each Old Testament book and anticipating uh, through the book how it points ultimately to Jesus. So today we are in Ezekiel. Ezekiel is a prophet of the exile. He was kicked out of the land before Jerusalem even fell. And then he was called to be a prophet in um, 593. So in 586, Jerusalem, the city, came to destruction. Babylon came and took them over. In 597, uh, just the year before that, 587 rather, um, no, 597, Um, Ezekiel had been taken, but it wasn't until 593 that he was called to be a prophet. So he grew up in Jerusalem, a younger contemporary of an older Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was a priest, and Ezekiel was a priest, and he probably got to learn from this older teacher. His book is filled with echoes of Jeremiah. But he got hiked out of the land before God called him as a prophet. So at this time... We have Jews still in Jerusalem, where Jeremiah was still stuck at this time. Then you've got Daniel and Ezekiel and a bunch of other guys over here in Babylon. And then in 580, six years after the destruction, a whole group of guys will head off carrying Jeremiah, kicking and screaming to Egypt. So we'll have Jews in three parts of the world. Ezekiel is over here in Babylon, and that plays in because he gets all these visions of Jerusalem. And we had one day in Ezekiel at the end of last spring, and that's where we're going to pick up today. So here's the general outline of the book. Ezekiel's vision and call, judgment against Judah, judgment against the nations, and hope for Israel. So let's just see where we were. i got to find my book first. All right, so you'll recall that Ezekiel is in Babylon with a bunch of guys in a room, some elders from Jerusalem, and all of a sudden he says the Holy Spirit showed up, and so he's sitting in a chair, and it says the Spirit lifted him up. Actually, it was holding his shoulder. He said he grabbed my shoulder and lifted me up and took me to Jerusalem. So probably visionary, but he arrives in Jerusalem right in the heart of the temple. And he begins to see a vision. A vision that's a mixture of, so here's God's throne right in the most holy place, the Ark of the Covenant, where God's presence is. In Israel, they had curtains in front of every holy of holies. In front of the Holy of Holies here, in front of the entrance to the most holy place here, only the priests could go into this area, only the high priests into this area, and then there was even the curtain at the front of the temple door. We have no evidence in any material outside the Bible that any of the temples of the ancient world ever had curtains. They were always east-oriented, and the God was right here. The idol would sit in the Holy of Holies. And as the sun would rise, the gods would sleep at night. And as the sun would rise, the sun would shoot through the eastern corridor all the way into the temple proper and into the Holy of Holies. And the light would hit the idol and it would awake. 
And God set up a temple that was filled with curtains so that they could recognize that this was not a reflective light, but real glory emanating from the Holy of Holies. And the vision that we got was that he saw the glory cloud, the same glory that he had seen on the river Chabar when he had been called to be a prophet. And that glory was, was hovering here over the Ark of the Covenant. And out here were a bunch of Jews with their backs turned, 70 of them pointed to the sun. The glory of God is in the Holy of Holies and they, they're turning away from it, worshiping the sun as it's rising. And so what Ezekiel then envisioned is that the glory cloud began to go on the move. And it was a picture of where the Jews' hearts were. They were distant from God. The glory cloud got to the edge of the temple, and and then the next picture, the next picture was over the Mount of Olives, leaving Jerusalem. God's presence departing from the people that he had been with since the days of Moses. So, the departure of the presence symbolized the distance of Judah's hearts from their God. God was no longer near them, and they had run from them, from Him, and as His presence left, it opened the door for judgment to come. The kind of sins that are pointed to in this book are very contemporary. Things like abortion outside the womb, child sacrifice. I read about child sacrifice in the Bible, and I understand it. People killing others in order to benefit their own pleasure. That's how idolatry worked. You pay the God in order that the God might owe you something. So, what is the God of abortion? It's it's people's pleasure, their time, their energy. It's going to be too much work. I don't need this. I was just talking with Randy Alcorn. Anybody know Randy? That name? 21 years ago, Randy Alcorn was a pastor. He spoke at the Desiring God conference this weekend. He was a pastor of a church that he had started 15 years earlier, and he was on the front end of abortion issues. And they had... um, he, he, he was on the front end of urging churches to get involved in the life, right-to-life movement. And he, um, what ended up happening is he became one of those people at the abortion clinic that wouldn't let others go in. And they got, he got uh, put in jail nine times, and it climaxed in a large court setting. And the judge at that time, so 21 years ago, charged him and a number of other people to pay directly to an abortion clinic. And he said, Judge, I will give you whatever you want, but I cannot pay you any money so that other people can pay money to people so that they can go kill babies. The lawyer that was going against him said, Sir, Mr. Judge, these women have every right, as much of a right to kill their babies as a person in McDonald's has to throw away their hamburger. That was his argument. And the reality is that legally that's exactly true. But morally it's not. But in the ancient world, they were casting babies aside, thinking that they would be able to please the gods and therefore gain more satisfaction, gain more pleasure. Casting them aside. Idolatry. Idolatry comes in all kinds of forms. Anything that is mastering us other than God. Jesus said you can't love money and love God at the same time. You'll be mastered by one and you'll hate the other. Contempt for parents. Many of us have experienced that. Or we've lived it ourselves. It's one of the sins that condemned Israel. Failing to care for the sojourner, the widow, and the orphan. 
Only in the last five years do I feel like my wife and I are beginning to understand what it means to love God. Only beginning. As He's taken us into the love for the broken and we've seen blood-bought, curse-overcoming power intrude into space and time and, and ransom three little kids out of orphan status and give them a family. Orphan status is a curse and God cares for the broken. And the way that He cares is through His people. And in the Old Testament, these people were not caring and imaging God like they were supposed to be. They were despising what is holy. That is, taking lightly that which is of great worth. Not acting as though God is of worth, of value. And therefore, setting Him aside... It happens with our time. It happens with our treasures, with our talents. It happens with how we treat others who have the imprint of God upon them, the image of God. We take that which is holy and despise it. Sexual immorality, rampant. I would imagine some in this room struggling with it. What you're looking at on a regular basis. How you're allowing your mind to go on a regular basis. Immorality. Some of the women bound up in novels that are unhealthy for you because it paints pictures in your mind that are not true. Sexual immorality, it was rampant then and it is now. Extortion and dishonest gain. Just dishonesty at the core in order to benefit yourself at the expense of others. These are the sins of Israel. And the... Evidence, the evidence that there was true sin at the core, we find in chapter 9. And this text is, this is, um, we looked at it at the very end of last year. God shows up at the temple and he brings with him his um, capital punishment squad the team that will go into Jerusalem and guide each one who is against God to the electric chair. But there's one who is not dressed in black. And he has a little tablet in his hand. And God says, okay, I want you to go out and mark on the forehead, look at verse 4 of chapter 9, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in Jerusalem. When you see a list like this, and you consider what's going on in our world, what's going on in your children's lives, what's going on in your own life, does it force you to grieve over the abomination of sin? Or are you calloused to it? That's the question that's being raised right here. And everyone who's grieving will be saved. And everyone who cares little is judged. So that's where we got. We come to chapter 11. And here's what God declared. You have feared the sword, and I will bring the sword upon you, declares the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 8. And I will bring you out of the midst of it and give you into the hands of foreigners. You'll no longer be in Jerusalem. I will execute judgments upon you. You shall fall by the sword. I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. What's it going to take for you, for me, to know that He is Yahweh? Will we learn just looking at the substitute, or will we ourselves have to become the sacrifice? The city shall not be your cauldron, nor shall you be the meat in the midst of Jerusalem. No, I will judge you at the border of Israel, and you shall know that I am Yahweh. For you have not walked in my statutes, nor obeyed my rules, but have acted according to the rules of the nations that are around you. So, Israel has a pattern. Israel was set apart by God to do what Adam was supposed to do. So just a little refresher on redemptive history, the history of redemption. God creates a man outside the Garden of Eden. And then He places him inside the Garden of Eden and calls him to be an imager of God. Specifically, He says in Genesis 2.15, be a provider and a protector of the Garden. 
And this is before Eve's on the scene. And then he brings the woman and calls her his helper. So she will help him provide, help him protect all that's in the sphere of the garden. It's not just turf. No, in the garden is animals. In the garden are trees. And in the garden it will be a family. And this one man is called to, with his girl, provide and protect the garden. And Satan shows up and there's no protection. And everything goes south. And God said, on the day that you eat of it, you will die. But originally the call was, fill the earth. Take the Garden of Eden as the center where I enjoy fellowship with you and fill the earth. Let the Garden of Eden be ever-expanding. And as you fill the earth, man and woman, kingdom families ever expanding to make kingdom communities, what's going to happen is that God's going to be put on display. If the people are imaging God, His glory seen in the lives of people who are radically dependent on God, all of a sudden, the kingdom families will make a kingdom community that will be ever expanding, filling the earth, the Garden of Eden, the temple of God, ever expanding until the whole earth is filled with the glory of God until the waters cover, like the waters cover the sea. That was the image in the Garden of Eden. And Adam failed. And so God raised up a second Adam. Not the last Adam, but a second one. Who he puts now, he creates them outside of the promised land, their garden paradise. He creates them outside the garden and then puts them into the garden and calls them, I want you to be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. That is, I want you... The entire group of you, not just some of you in the midst, but the whole nation will be a kingdom of priests in the midst of the whole world. You will mediate my presence to the world and you'll be holy. You'll be imaging and displaying my holiness to all the world. They'll come to you and they'll meet me. So Israel was supposed to be what Adam was supposed to be. But instead of magnifying the greatness of God's name, Israel profaned the name of God. And they were what Adam was. And just as Adam and Eve were kicked out of their garden paradise, Israel was kicked out of theirs. Judah's sin secures their destruction. This rebellion and judgment is depicted in various ways. Then, after chapter 11, their judgment that's coming is depicted in various ways. A wayward bride, chapter 16. Very hard chapter to work through graphic imagery of God married to this woman who's unfaithful to him and he as the husband then justly disciplines her. Or covenant rebellion in chapter 20. The hearts of Israel cold toward their God. What's so amazing is that dotted throughout this whole beginning part of the book which is focused on judgment, there's these little glimmers of New covenant hope. That curse is not the end. And you and I find ourselves in the midst of that. Because not only, just like in the book of Jeremiah that we looked at last year, not only is God's vision for Israel, but always it's through Israel that the world would be blessed. And that there would come one who would represent all the people, a king, who would reign not only over a restored Israel, but over a restored world. We come to the end of the section section on sin, and we're going to camp here for a few minutes in chapter 24. So turn with me there. Chapter 24 is when God makes most explicit Babylon is now on the other side of the hill. So in the first 14 verses, God declares the judgment on Jerusalem is imminent. It's happening. Babylon is there. It's it's encroaching. It's covering. Sin has now given rise to curse and judgment. But it's as if the people don't even recognize why it's going on. Why is the trouble happening? And we're going to look at the amazing thing that this prophet was called to do. You never know what God will do. I mean, I think of the Sorleys. So long ago, God puts it on their heart 
And he just captures them, and, and they follow his call to Africa. 20 years? Is that how long you were there? 30 years. And in answering the call, they had no clue what it would mean for them. The sacrifice they would have to give. The loneliness that they would experience. The persecution they would feel. The pain they would undergo. The separation. They knew it it was going to be there, but, but exactly the details? No concept. But they had encountered the living God. Like Abraham in Mesopotamia. Something had to happen in this man's life to make him be willing to go to a land where he owned none of it and property was all passed on through generations. There had to be something happened to this man that would make him be willing to go in light of a promise that he would become a nation when his wife was barren. He had to have such an encounter with the living God. In fact, Stephen in Acts chapter 7 We don't read this in Genesis 12, but Stephen just reading the text, what does he say? The God of glory appeared to him in such a compelling way. There must have been something so compelling about the promise maker and so desirable about the promises that he was making that moved him out of a life of moon worship, says Joshua 24, to go where God was calling him to go when the land would take a miracle and the people that would flow from him, would take a miracle, both of them, fully, he was relying in faith. Ezekiel gets called to be a prophet and has no clue what it will mean. But the worth of God was enough for him. And as we read this text, just ask yourself, how much is God worth to me? The word of the Lord came to me, verse 15, Son of man, so I'm in chapter 24 of Ezekiel, This is after a very long, developed discussion of all the ways that Israel has turned from God, and it climaxes now in judgment. Son of man, behold, I'm about to take the delight of your eyes away from you at a stroke. Yet you shall not mourn or weep, nor shall your tears run down. Sigh, but not aloud. Make no mourning for the dead. Bind on your turban and put your shoes on your feet. Do not cover your lips, nor eat the bread of men. Prophets are a weird breed. We know, like, God called, um, I think it was Ezekiel, maybe it was Isaiah. I don't know everything. I don't remember everything. Um, You know, I want you to lay on your side naked for 40 days. I hope he doesn't ever call me to do that. There's no prophet in the Bible who is called upon more to be a, dram- a dramatist. Drama. What is a dramatist? A play guy. To act out his message. To live it in his own life. No prophet more than Ezekiel. He's called to do extreme weird things. And, and we're told that the whole audience is looking at him at key points... And just scratching their head, scratching their head. Okay, Ezekiel, what's this one about? In Ezekiel thirty-three, this is what they're actually going to say. They're just—they think he's an entertainer. I'll just—you guys keep your hands in Ezekiel twenty-four. I'll just read the last verses of Ezekiel thirty-three. And behold, you are to them like one who sings lustful songs. He's got a pretty voice. He's an entertainer. You sing with a beautiful voice and you play well on an instrument. That's what you're like. For they hear what you say, but they will not do what you tell them to do. But know this, when this comes, that is the judgment. When the judgment comes, and surely it will come, then they will know that a prophet was in their midst. All of the acting that God calls him to do, And as we're going to see, it's not only acting like I'm going to perform for you um, something. He acts to embody it 
Think of like Hosea who was called to marry a prostitute as a picture of what God has done with his bride. And then he has three kids, all of which he names horrible, horrible names. No compassion. Not my people. I will scatter you. That's the name of his kids. I mean, how would, would you name your kids that? Hey, not my people. You coming over tomorrow? Ezekiel has to live with, Hosea had to live with that. Ezekiel is doing his devotions one morning. And God says, I'm going to take away the delight of your eyes. And that delight was his bride. He wakes up, he's in, spending time in the Word, and God says, know this, today I'm going to take your wife away. You'll never see her again. Your bed will be empty. And I don't want you to mourn for her externally. Act as though it's no big deal. Put the turban on your head, have a clean face, no sense of pain. Don't let anybody see any pain. So I spoke to the people in the morning, and at evening, my wife was dead. So he's in his devotions. God tells him what he's going to do. So he goes out and does his ministry that day, and by the time he came home that evening, his wife was gone. Now, the next day, he knows what he's supposed to do. He's supposed to wake up and not act like it's any, anything's happened. The delight of his eyes. I don't know if she knew. Kingdom work can be at very high cost. So I spoke to the people in the morning and at evening my wife was dead and on the next morning I did what I was commanded. How much worth is the word of God to you? That's that's what we're being pressed upon right now. Even when life doesn't make sense, when everything you love gets stripped away, we sang about it today, and it caused me to pause and think, if all that I treasure is gone, will you be of greatest worth to me? Is your kingdom and your glory of highest worth to me, even more than my wife, even more than my kids? So I did what I was commanded. And you can believe it. The people began to say, what are you doing? The people said to me, will you not tell us what these things mean for us? That you are acting this way. Last Thursday, Friday, coming home from the Desiring God conference, I, had, uh, a new commu- I have a new commuting buddy, um, Pastor Jason moved, so I don't get to commute with him anymore. And God brought a new New Testament professor to Bethlehem College and Seminary, and he only lives a few miles from me, and now we get to commute together. And it's such a blessing from the Lord. I, so I was with him down at the Desiring God Conference, and um, my family went over to his family's house, and they left not five minutes before I did, before I had arrived. So I dropped him off, and... En route, Teresa passes a Culver's on the intersection of Foley and County Road 10, Coon Rapids Boulevard, that Culver's right there. And as she's passing, she has this deep urge in her soul that she needs to pray for me. So she's got all the kids in the back, and she says, Guys, be quiet. I think we need to pray for your daddy. So she pauses, and she prays out loud. And right after she gets done, I give her a call. I just dropped off. Dr. Andy Nacelli at his house, and I'm heading home, and I had just gotten onto Foley, and I'm driving down to Culver's, and I'm talking with her, and she didn't tell me she had prayed, um, but as I turn the corner in Culver's, I'm down about 100 yards past Culver's, and all of a sudden, 100 feet in front of me, a car is right there, and it just auto- amazingly, like 90 degree angle, all of a sudden, and smashes into the sidewall right there. And the back of her car goes up, the sidewall caves in, the front end becomes an accordion, the front glass smashes in, and I was first responder. 
but I happen to be in the other lane over here rather than right there. And so God, by his grace, helped me keep my cool, and I went up and I looked in the window, and there was smoke all on the inside. I wasn't sure if it was fire. It was, I think, airbag stuff, and I had never experienced that. But um, So I opened up. She's looking at me with these giant shock-filled eyes, and she has some blood, and I enter into the car, and I begin to comfort her, and I ask her if I can pray for her. And um, an, a person who's in the apartments next door comes running out, and she's freaking out. And I, I, so I got to go call an aunt, and I, um, she said, I just want to pray. I just want to pray. And I said, we can do that. So then I prayed with her. Um, by God's grace, this, I think this woman was okay. She had a big cut in her head, and, um, but the medics showed up, and I think all was well. But say that was my wife. And say that my wife had died. And an email went out across the campuses. Pray for the DeRoshi family. We just saw it right here. Mom's gone. And if I was to show up today, first of all, to even teach, and I came in and acted like there was nothing No big thing happened in my life this week. What would go on in your minds? What would you think? That's a real question. Denial. Denial. Repression. But the text suggests what would be natural is also accompanying with that, because he's trusting in the sovereignty of God, but he's asking him to do something that's not natural. Indeed, what is even right to grieve? Grief is a good thing. There is godly grief. You can have real pain and real trust all mingled together. And in this context, God is asking him to do something that is not natural. And it wouldn't be natural. And if I was here in that type of a setting, you should be raising questions. And his audience was. And and you might be saying, well, why did God ask him to do this? God takes the delight of his eyes away. And don't act like it hurts. Let's read what God has to say. So the people were asking, what's the point? Verse 20, So I said to them, the word of the Lord came to me, Say to the house of Israel, thus says Yahweh God, or the Lord Yahweh rather, Behold, I will profane my sanctuary, the pride of your power. God's with us. We've got our little rabbit foot. I go to church. All is well. My parents were believers. I'm in. They have a pride and arrogance. No one can touch us. Yahweh is in the midst of us. His glory is in the Holy of Holies. We can visually see it. So they have a pride about the presence of God. And then he calls his sanctuary the delight of their eyes. And he will take it away from them. And when he takes it away from them, they will not recognize at the core how deep of a loss it really is. I'll take away the delight of your eyes and the yearning of your soul and your sons and your daughters whom you left behind shall fall by the sword and you shall do as I have done, he says. You shall not cover your lips nor eat of the bread of men. Your turbans shall be on your heads and your shoes on your feet. You shall not mourn or weep, but you shall rot away in your iniquities and groan to one another. Their foolishness in not grieving over the depth of their sin, which is bringing about the judgment, the loss of what they love, the presence of God. They don't really love it, but it's the delight of their eyes. But they don't, the, the evidence that they don't really love it is seen in the fact that they're not going to grieve. It's not going to hit them to the core. Oh my, we caused this. 
Sin is supposed to grab us from within and break us and move us to the cross. It's supposed to move us to repentance. And if we are not leveled by sin, even our own, and when we see it in our kids, when we see it in our schools, when we see it in our news reports, if it doesn't force us to grieve and be moved to God and to celebrate Him as the only hope and as the only help, we are not where we are supposed to be. We are supposed to grieve over sin. It's supposed to move us to mourn and to turn our eyes to God. The messenger becomes the message, don't mourn, in order to depict the foolishness of the people who fail to recognize the gravity of their loss of God's presence due to the hardness of their hearts. So 24 comes... And Ezekiel stops cold his message for Israel. He leaves them feeling this sense of gravity. And then he moves in. And so the last word, you're going to be judged. And you could care less. Oh, you're going to mourn at some level that the temple's gone, but you're not going to realize the depth of what you've lost because you don't realize that you're the one who caused it. And then he turns the tables and then he begins to focus on Ammon and Moab and Seir and Edom and Philistia and Tyre and Sidon and Egypt. He goes from chapter 25 to chapter 32 and he doesn't mention Israel at all. He just leaves them hanging. And only in chapter 33 then does he come back and mention that Jerusalem is finally destroyed. But it's like he's, he's pulling us into his book. He's wanting us to be mulling over, do I grieve enough? Do I ache enough? In light of the judgment that is coming, where am I on the map? I mean, we're talking about the temple. That's the very place where provision and substitution is provided for. But it's only provided for those who recognize that they're a sinner in need of grace. And if you take away that provision, you take away the only potential, the temple is destroyed, substitution is no more, will you feel loss? Or will you feel like nothing's changed? God left us. It's His problem. Why are we here? Or will you get it? So in the history part, so we have covenant established, covenant enforced, covenant enjoyed. Those are the three parts of the Old Testament. The law, the prophets, and the writings. And we're right now in the prophets portion, the covenant enforced. It starts in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Joshua, Judges, Samuel, Kings, and Jesus' Bible, they're all storybooks as we know, true stories, of how the covenant went bad. They tell us what happened. Well, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Isaiah, and the 12 minor prophets, they unpack for us why it went the way that it did. These are the sermons that people were hearing in the process of while it was going bad. And there's no evidence in all this book, even in light of the massive loss that Ezekiel experienced, there's not one bit of evidence that anybody ever listened to him in a 25-year ministry, that he ever had an impact. To him, he remained a singer of love songs, an entertainer, saying, judgment's coming. Heed the seriousness of sin. So these kind of books are hard for us to get through because of that, because they have that ominous sense, judgment's on the horizon and sin is serious. But it's still that same way. But we have a clearer picture of the hope than Ezekiel and his audience ever had. But he had it. And that controls actually the entire last half of his book. After Jerusalem falls in chapter 3, it's like the lights turn on in the book. And what was simply hinted at, new covenant hope, new covenant hope. There's a Messiah coming. I'll call him the prince. I'll call him the shepherd of Israel, the son of David. The division that was brought about in Israel, I'm going to bring them together, unite them. He has a glorious picture of the presence of God returning among his people. So it's not all dreary, but we don't get to glory unless we take seriously sin. 
The cross and the work of Christ is not magnified in a world where sin is held in a closet and not let out. The only way you arrive at hope and peace or good news, the only way you get to good news is if you let God be the Lord, let His means of substitution be your hope. And the only way you'll get a substitute is if you recognize your sinfulness. So here's the conclusion. At this point in the book, and Ezekiel's going to pick it up at the end, but it's as if Judah is dead. You can't say it any more bluntly. They have cold hearts, and they might still be breathing, but most of them will be followed by a quick death in the judgment that Babylon will bring. But they are walking dead men. And therefore, if anything, if anything is going to happen to them, it will be due to the mercy of God. So we know Ezekiel 37 is going to come on and it's going to give a vision of dry bones. Can this valley of dry bones live? That's where they start. And so what they're going to need is a resurrection. And it's one of a number of texts in the Old Testament where the resurrection is actually made explicit. They're dead, and they're going to need to be raised to life. It's not like they're partially alive. Lazarus couldn't get himself out of the tomb. He needed something more powerful than death to say, wake up. He had nothing in himself. He was not the decisive mover. And so too, if Israel's going to experience anything, it's going to have to be verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2, not verses 1 through 3. Verses 1 through 3 of Ephesians chapter 2, you were dead. You were dead. What's verse 4 start with? But God. But God, who is rich in mercy, lavishes us with that mercy in the person of Christ. And Ezekiel's going there, and that's where we're going to go next week. So they are not resting in peace, but lying under the curse of God like a valley of dry bones. And any hope that follows is unmerited mercy and must be akin to resurrection. So that's where Ezekiel takes them. He gets them up to chapter 33. They are dead. And then we hear the amazing Ezekiel 36, not for your sake, Not on account of anything you have done, but for the sake of my holy name, I will make a new covenant, an everlasting covenant. That's where we're headed. But it has nothing to do with Israel, and our participation in it has nothing to do with us. It's a name reclamation project. God's name has been profaned, and he is passionate to preserve and display his right reputation. But sin is serious. God's name will be exalted The question is, will we take seriously our sin as much as he takes seriously our sin? So I think that up to this point is the message of Ezekiel, but it's not where he ends, and we're not going to stop there either. So I pause. I don't know if we, well, we do have a few minutes. If you need to get to your kids, what time did, I think he got done right around now, Pastor Jason did. But I also want to open the door. If you need to run to get to your kids, feel free, or you can stick around, and if you have questions, just raise your hand and we'll talk through some things. Anything at all? Right. And and the text is setting us up to say that will take a miracle. It would be like dead bones all of a sudden coming to life. And they won't do it on their own. But when God speaks and then raises up those dead bones, he'll put flesh on them and then he'll breathe his spirit into them. It's new life. and that, it's, So it's a picture of rebirth. It's like John 3. In fact, in John 3, the two things that Jesus says Nicodemus needs, he needs water and spirit. And in all the Old Testament, there's only one passage that includes both water and spirit, and that's Ezekiel 36. So we're going to look at that. That's where we're going to go next week, and it sets the stage for rebirth, that whole image of rebirth, or another category, resurrection. So the miracle can happen, will happen, and does happen. That's my only hope.
And it does. So we're living in the day of fulfillment. And that's amazing. Most of Ezekiel's audience, I mean, Ezekiel's there. I think he's going to be with us. He had experienced something that the majority had not. But I don't even think his experience compares to what we're experiencing. He was still longing in a way that we have seen realization. So that the writer to the Hebrews can say, um, they died in hope. Looking ahead to our day. They, what they were doing was ultimately for us. To keep us persevering. And they needed our day in order that they might enjoy full joy. That is the day of Jesus. The, I mean, the two sides. We've got Daniel also here. He's got three buddies. They're among this group too. But the text is talking, it, it suggests that the majority were rebel and only a very small group were remnant. Small group of believers living in a sea of, so the majority was anti-God. And yet they were supposed to be the people of God. And we're going to see the prophet Jonah is a picture of the entire people. He's a prophet of Yahweh who hates the character of Yahweh. I knew that you would be a God gracious and compassionate. And that's why I went the other direction. So, that's where the majority of the people are. And, um, and that's why Paul in 2 Corinthians 3 can refer to the Old Covenant. That's where we're living in right now. The Old Covenant had a ministry of condemnation. It doesn't mean that every person in the covenant was condemned, but when you look at it as a whole, it was, a, it was a, an external covenant. Everything was left on the outside. People didn't have internal change. And the hope of the new covenant, what makes it a ministry of righteousness, is that people are going to get transformed, rebirth, new creation. So the future is going to intrude into the present through Jesus. So the old age that's been building with Adam, all death and destruction, condemnation, and the Old Covenant, just as Israel is a picture of Adam, and that rather than doing what Adam was supposed to do, they do what Adam did. And therefore, Israel becomes a small picture of what the whole world is in. Israel's curse is a picture of the world's curse. Their problem is the world's problem. And that's Paul's argument in Romans 2 and 3. Jews, you had everything good come to you, and yet... It didn't benefit you, and therefore the whole world's mouths are shut. Because if they received the covenants and they received the promises and it didn't benefit them, who am I who didn't receive any of that to think that I could be in a better place? And so everybody in the world, Jew and Gentile alike, needs Jesus, who bears the curse not only for Israel, but in his curse bearing, he's bearing the curse of Adam as well. And... He answers not only the problem of Israel, but the problem of the world. And he becomes, as we're going to see, especially in Isaiah, which is the next book we're going to look at. I'm really excited about it. Isaiah has the clearest picture that the representative of Israel, namely the king, the Messiah, he gets named, and his name is Israel. And the mission of Israel is to restore Israel. It's right in the exact same passage, Isaiah 49. The one who will redeem Israel, his name is Israel. And it's too light a thing that he would only redeem Israel. I'll make him a light to the nations. So all of a sudden, because the king is able to represent the community, the promises of Israel's restoration are bound up in the person of Christ, and there's no restoration apart from him. He's the one who provides all of the blessing for Jew and Gentile alike who are identified with him, he's the ultimate offspring of Abraham, the ultimate Israelite, and the ultimate human, the last Adam. But there was still people hoping, the small remnant few, hoping for what you and I are now experiencing in the new covenant. And they had some level of it realized in their own soul. They had changed hearts. They were redeemed people. There's question as to whether they had the Spirit in them. Because the Old Testament focuses on the Spirit as a physical presence in the temple. But the New Testament is clear that people can't 
see sin overcome without the work of the Spirit. So at least the Spirit was regenerating, but was he indwelling hearts? That's, that's a question that is still a little unclear to me, but I, I have some thoughts. But what's absolutely clear to me, I, I believe, is that when we get to Pentecost, now it's the Spirit of the resurrected Christ, and so there's still escalation. From whatever the Old Testament saints experienced, they didn't experience the Spirit of the resurrected Christ. Exactly. I do. I agree with that. Yep. Yeah, and in Galatians chapter 3, Paul's argument seems to be, to me, suggesting that, did you receive the Spirit by works of law or by hearing with faith? And then his, I mean, he asks that question and he says, let's look at the life of Abraham. That suggests to me, to me, he had the Spirit. That, but I have a number of peers who are still cautious about that. But the spirit that Abraham had, um, is it Peter? First Peter chapter 1, he even says that the prophets of old were looking into the future and that it, they were um, considering what the spirit of Christ in them, that's how it's worded, the spirit of the Messiah in them was telling them regarding the future salvation. So that, that's very striking. And then we have numerous texts when it says Joshua was endowed with the spirit of wisdom. I'm prone to think that's, that's what we have. But we have, I, I still think that the coming of the person of Christ does make what we're experiencing something more than what Abraham experienced. But he was still, all, everything he had was still by grace, by the power of the spirit. And I think he was indwelt. I, I do think he was indwelt. But a number of my peers still push back on that. We'll pick up here. May the Lord bless you. Thanks for sticking around. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi-meyer.org. Proclaiming the Kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.